Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Big day, two great guests. We're going to be talking about elections and election integrity and the Georgia governor's race with Bernie Carrick, the former NYPD commissioner who is currently advising Vernon Jordan, the Trump-loving Democrat who became a Republican this year, former state legislator there. And he's going to talk to us about a new poll out by Trafalgar showing that Kemp's support in the primary is below 50% among Republicans. And Vernon Jordan is the second pick of most people. And if Vernon Jordan were to be endorsed by Donald Trump, he would defeat the current governor, Brian Kemp. That is a fascinating dynamic. You seldom see an incumbent governor with that sort of numbers, that sort of baggage. So we're talking to Bernie Carrick about that. We're also going to talk to him about the story that we broke today, the Election Assistance Commission quietly earlier this year changing the standards, the guidelines for all voting machines in America to say they can no longer be connected to any networks, the internet, private networks, no network connectivity whatsoever. And if they do have a wireless port, like to attach a mouse to or keyboard, those have to be disabled permanently. A lot of people don't agree with that, don't think those rules went far enough. They'd like to see the wireless ports lopped off or cut off the machines, not just disabled. Uh, But we're going to talk to Bernie Carrick about all of that and why the question is, did that happen after the November 2020 election, not before? Some great conversation coming up with former NYPD Commissioner Bernie Carrick, who, by the way, will be on a special edition. We're going to do a special Saturday edition of the John Solomon Reports podcast to focus on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We've got an all-star cast. Bernie Carrick's going to be on that show giving us his remembrances about what it was like to be the NYPD commissioner the morning those planes hit the towers and some untold stories from what happened on the ground behind the scenes. Uh, We're also going to have Lee Hamilton, the former Democratic Indiana congressman who was a co-chairman of the 9-11 Commission. We're going to have Frank Siller, of course, from the Tunnels to Towers Foundation. You heard a little bit from him earlier this week. We've got an all-star cast. Join me. That special will be live by 7 a.m. on Saturday. We don't normally publish on Saturday. We don't normally have a podcast, but 
this Saturday we do. And I'm going to start off with my own personal remembrances of what was going on in 9-11, my reporting work related to it. Tell you a story that a lot of you may not remember or didn't even know that happened and why I was in the news just before 9-11 struck and then what I did as a reporter afterwards. It's going to be a really fun and solemn and full of news podcast. So please check out your podcasting software on Saturday morning. We are going to do a six special podcast honoring the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and all of those who have fallen, the firefighters, the police officers, the soldiers, the innocent victims in the towers and at the Pentagon, one hero after the next to be remembered this Saturday live on John Solomon Reports. It'll be live by 7 a.m. So get your alarm clock set, set it on your phone, Make a note for yourself. I think you'll enjoy a very solemn, but also chock full informative discussion about 9-11 and what it means 20 years later and where we are headed next in the war on terror. All right. So Bernie Carrick's the first guest. Second guest today, we're going to go back to the days of Ronald Reagan and what and ask the question, what would Ronald Reagan do today about climate change, about Afghanistan, about the deficit, about the size of government? Joining us is former President Reagan's, a longtime executive assistant, Peggy Grande, somebody who probably knew the president uh, as well as any of his advisors, spent the final years with him post-presidency. She wrote the great book. You may uh, now see the president, which is a great read if you've never read it, a must read for anyone who loves Reagan or the White House in general. But Peggy Grande joining us, we're going to talk Reagan. What would Reagan do on some of the big issues today? What a podcast. Back to back. Bernie Carrick, Peggy Grande, right after this commercial message from our great advertisers and sponsors. Remember to support them. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And we've got a special few moments here with the former NYPD commissioner. Bernie Carrick is here, and we're going to talk politics, actually, today. We, later in the week, we're going to be talking to him about 9-11 and the 20th anniversary. But today, I just want to focus on some interesting political things going on. He's been advising Vernon Jordan, the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Georgia. And I want to check in with him and see where we're going. So, Bernie, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. It's always great to have you on. You have your fingers in so many things. You're always working on something. And one of those is that you advise Vernon Jordan, a former Democrat, a Trump-loving Democrat who became a Republican this year and is now challenging Brian Kemp. And there was a fascinating poll that came out from Trafalgar. Tell us what it showed. Well, basically, um, you know, what the poll showed was that Vernon is primarily the next runner-up to Kemp and with Trump's endorsement, Vernon would take about 55% of the vote in the primary. That's pretty damning for Kemp. Look, you know, I was down there, John, when they had the GOP convention. Right. And the GOP convention is pretty much the governor's convention, right? He has all his delegates there. 
there were about 2,000, maybe 2,500 people in that room. And in that room, he got up on the stage to speak to his delegates, and he was booed for about seven minutes to the point that he had to leave the stage, never got to speak. Vernon Jones got up there, um, you know, on the contrary, and was given a standing ovation for about five minutes. So I, I think that's pretty telling. That is. You that's a big delegates. headline for an incumbent uh, governor. That, that's exactly right. And this poll shows that um, Vernon could basically sweep him. Vernon could take him. And uh, and there's nobody else really out there. You know, they've got two other candidates, yeah. possible candidates in the in the primary. They don't even hit the registers. So uh, yep. I think this is pretty telling. Uh, you know, we're hoping that the president will come forward and endorse Vernon uh, earlier than later. Um, it would obviously help his campaign. Um, but you know what? Vernon's a fighter. He's on the ground. He's in the trenches. He's got a, a, a hell of a ground game, and he's constantly making headway. So it's uh, it's only a matter of time. Vernon Jones is going to be the next governor of the state of Georgia. It's a pretty amazing poll because you've got an incumbent governor, and uh, on a straight-up primary question, he's only at like 44 45%. He's sub-50% in his own party's primary. That's always a warning flag as a political reporter. When you've got an incumbent and he doesn't have 50% support in his own party, that's the first warning sign, right? And then... Yeah, uh, well, jo- hey, John, yeah. listen, I, I think... And I think it's, uh, you know, it's tellable because the people of Georgia know that Brian Kemp was responsible for Joe Biden's win of Georgia. You know, the reality is Joe Biden didn't really win Georgia. Georgia, that, that, that vote was stolen out of Fulton County and some of the other counties. But they certified the vote. The Secretary of State certified the vote knowing, knowing it was wrong. And I know he knew. Because the legal team told him we produced evidence to give him. They refused to look at it. But now, now they're looking at everything and they basically come to the conclusion that there were all kind of improprieties and there were all kind of vote shams. They should have done that before they certified the vote. We now know that Secretary of State Rassenberg, because of a FOIA that we won here at Just the News, had 20, uh, 29 page report sent to him by his personal observer in Fulton County. That's Atlanta, the biggest voting metropolis there. 29 pages of identified problems, double scanning of ballots, voter ID, uh, privacy in, uh, intrusions, some of the election workers making comments suggesting they were there to mess up the election for Trump. Uh, all of that was there before all the claims that this was a, a, a fine election. Now, now that it's been given to Joe Biden, he's the president. Uh, Raffsenberger wants to take over Fulton County and saying it was a terribly run election there, where you know nearly a sixth of the state is there. It's just remarkable. But level set that so Kemp owns that right. Kemp and Raffsenberger are a team. They own that. He's below fifty percent. Uh, Vernon Jordan's at 25% uh, or so with another 25, 26% undecided. And if Trump comes in and endorses Vernon Jordan, the Trafalgar poll shows that all of a sudden Vernon Jones is at 55% and Brian Kemp is down way in the 20s. Uh, a real sign That's of right. a very vulnerable incumbent. Re- remarkably so, I think. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and just on one other note, John, I get to give you a lot of credit. You're the one that uncovered that document and what what was killer about that document about that 29 page memo that Raffensperger had 
he actually had that memo before we, the legal team, went to him. Wow. So not only did we try to give him evidence, not only did we try to give him affidavits and give him all of the things that could have proven that the election was a fraud, he already knew it. He already knew it, and you proved that when you produced that memo. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable thing, and, and it's amazing because he gets that memo, then he does a 60 Minutes interview saying it was a perfect election. Those are my words, but you know, basically it was a great election. Uh, and then a few months later, he begins the process of literally stripping Fulton County of its ability to run its own elections, which is a very severe penalty under the new election law, and you can only do it if you believe that there was widespread mismanagement of the last election or last elections, plural. So uh, there's this contradiction in time. The timeline doesn't add up. Uh, it's very inconsistent. And of course, Kemp was right alongside Rafsenberg. So that's how this, this dialogue gets going. What does Vernon Jordan, I mean, obviously, you know, the president, he has a tremendous respect for you because of your great work as the NYPD commissioner and your work on criminal justice reform. Uh, what does Vernon Jordan need to do to to get the president's endorsement? Is it possible for Trump to play in this primary? Yeah, I think it is. Look, I, I think the president uh, could play this out two ways. Well, one, he lets the primary play out until the end. Or two, he comes forward and endorses Vernon Jones uh, as the next primary candidate. Um, you know what? Because there's no one else out there, you know, and, and I think there's a there's another element to this to this campaign that people aren't looking at. Vernon Jones was a Democrat. Yeah. Vernon Jones is a black MAGA, major MAGA candidate. Yep. He flipped over to Republican. He endorsed, he fought for the president. He's a black MAGA candidate that was a Democrat. And there are a lot of Democrats in Atlanta, in and around Atlanta, that love him. And, I, and here's how I know, John. I go down to Atlanta. I hang out with Vernon. We go out to different restaurants and different events. And I've, I've watched people come up to him. And they do. To me, Listen, I, you know, I'm a Democrat. I would never, ever, ever vote for a Republican, but I'm voting for Vernon Jones. Wow. You know, there's really an interesting thing about this, about this poll. There's about 20, 26, 27 percent of the population is still undecided, which means uh, people who've known Kemp for four years, they don't have any much more time to think up their mind. They already know what he is. So if they're undecided, does Vernon Jordan go, go up and try to roll all that 25, 26 percent undecided? And does he try to get Democrats to cross over and vote into the Republican primary? I think he will. And I think he can. Because Vernon Jones is a fighter. I mean, this guy is a fighter. That's why I think I think it would be in, in the country's interest um, for the president to come out and endorse him. Um, he's the candidate. He's the one that's going to beat Kemp. And he is the only candidate in the Republican Party that I believe that can beat Stacey Abrams in the Democratic machine in Georgia. That's what's most important. Yeah, the general election, right? Because we've seen how effective her get out the vote operation is. There's no doubt that uh, that no, that exactly. is the single biggest uh, threat. If you're Brian Kemp and you look at this uh, poll, what is the what's the message you should take from this poll? I'd be worried, but you know what? We already know that Vernon's uh, that that Kemp is worried. We already know how so. You know, his people, because his people come to us and tell us. You know, there's a bunch of people in his camp that have come to us and told us. 
Um, there's people that worked for him, used to work for him, no longer does uh, come to us, and they tell us. There's, you know, the establishment party, the establishment that, you know, they're walking this fine line because Kemp is still in power. Right. They're scared to death. They're scared to death. They don't want to, they don't want to support Kemp, but he's in power. He's the, he's the sitting governor that's going to run for reelection. So they don't want to irritate him. They don't want to, you know, they don't, they don't want to, you know, have him come after them. So they're staying on the sidelines, but they've come to us and told us, you know, they're, they're praying that Vernon Jones wins the primary. There also seems to be post the election, some friction between Raffsenberger and Kemp. Kemp seems to be distancing himself from the secretary of state who proclaimed everything was fine and then came around and said, well, it really wasn't fine in Fulton County. Um, uh, does that, is that another warning sign for you that maybe Kemp is trying to uh, triangulate here? Oh, yeah. Well, I know he's trying to do it. And here's the deal, John. Both of these guys, both of them, the legal team led by Giuliani tried to get a hold of them, tried to talk to them, tried to give them evidence, both of them, not just the secretary of state, but the governor himself. And they did everything in their power to stay away from the legal team. They did everything in their power to get the vote certified as quickly as they possibly could. And they lobbied their own party internally, stay away from the matter. Leave us alone. Let us get this done. Let everybody move on, and we'll go about our business. The problem they have is it came back to haunt them when the people of Georgia said, wait a minute. You know, I live in a completely red county, or I live in a majority red county that's coming up for Joe Biden. How is that possible? They knew the election was stolen. We saw the videos in Fulton County. Everybody saw the videos in Fulton County. It went, it went viral, for God's sakes, and they still didn't do nothing about it. And like you said, Raffensperger then went on 60 Minutes and said, you know, in so many words, there was a perfect election. In fact, he sent a letter to Congress he did. saying that Donald Trump's allegations that there was a problem in Georgia's election is completely false. And that was a lie, and he knew it was a lie, and the governor allowed it. Uh, we now know that they were deeply concerned about what went on in Fulton County, and that is uh, exactly now out there. And uh, they've they've doubled back now, and now come down on Fulton County. But obviously, months after the election, uh, it's an amazing thing. Well, uh, that's a fascinating. I want to turn to one other issue. Uh, overnight, we have a story about what the Election Assistance Commission did. So, you know, they have always worried about. Um, uh, hacking of, of uh, voting machines. That's been a big concern since 2014, really, because of the growth of hacking and state-sponsored um, uh, uh, things and ransomware and other things. But they left the, uh, and they've encouraged machine makers to dis- keep their machines disconnected from the internet, but they never changed the standards, the, the, what they call the VVSG standards. And uh, earlier this year, they suddenly changed those standards to say all computers must be disconnected from the internet or any computer network because of the high vulnerability that creates and all wireless ports things like that can connect to a mouse or something like that uh, those have to be disabled in order to comply with federal standards that happens after the 2020 election now some people aren't satisfied they think the the wi-fi port should be shut or the uh, wireless report should be shut off entirely some states are already rebelling saying it's too weak a standard but the fact that after the 2020 election not before they made these changes any any reaction to that yeah they didn't have a choice 
they didn't have a choice because the American people now know there were problems. They now know they've seen, they've seen themselves. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you Arizona, for example. I remember going to Arizona with the mayor, right? going to see the head of the Senate, going to see the speaker. And we were shunned so bad. I almost felt like we were walking into a room filled with Democrats, but we weren't. We were walking into the state building uh, filled with Republicans who wanted nothing to do with election integrity. Nothing. They didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to know anything. They didn't like our arguments. They didn't want to see the evidence. Well, some of that evidence had to do with allegations about the machines. Okay. Well, back then, nobody wanted to know about it. Today, the American people already know. There's been too much that's come out about the election, uh, election fraud, voter fraud, uh, and about the machines. So I, I don't think, you know, and in, in, I'm using Arizona, a lot of those state legislators that refused to see us, they had voters, they had Arizonians on their doorstep at their houses protesting because they wanted the real vote. They wanted to know what the real election was, what, 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 who yeah. really won in Arizona. Well, we should and get that answer soon. you're seeing this. Yeah, we're going to get yeah, that answer that soon answer with the audit. I, I think we're going to get that answer. I think we're going to get Georgia. I think Pennsylvania is going to come. Yeah. And basically, at the end of the day, John, the reality is Trump, uh, Trump won the election. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, Joe Biden sitting in the White House because you had Republican legislators that didn't do their job. I know you feel strongly about that, and it's it's a frustrating thing. And you know, one of the things about this, even if the machines weren't hacked, right? The fact that there was a vulnerability and the government went another election before formally changing the rules makes everybody scratch their heads. That you know, what what sort of government do we have when we wait to after the fact? And then you know, the language in the report in, in February March is this is like a very severe vulnerability, but it didn't seem to be too severe before the election. So even if the machines weren't hacked and right now we don't have any direct evidence of any hacking, the, the, uh, the fact that they would leave a vulnerability going into such a high, uh, uh, intensity election is, is in and of itself stunning. And then you go back and realize one of the things that we did that many times these machines did the right thing. They kicked bad ballots out, right? They kept kicking them out. And right. then, as we saw in Georgia, humans went in and decided, you know what, I'm going to get rid of the Donald Trump vote on that and count this for Joe Biden. And uh, so even when the machines do their job, this human capability to come in, particularly on disputed ballots. And in uh, Georgia, Atlanta alone, there was 5,000 disputed ballots. Uh, Maricopa County in Phoenix tells us 20,000 plus disputed ballots. Humans could intervene and change whatever the machine had made a decision on previously kicking a ballot out. Uh, those are all things that have to, that people still have to come to grips with in this election. Yeah, well, hey, John, and you know something, that's that's a really good point, because here, here's the bottom line. We know that stuff happened. It's, yep. it's already been proven, right? Yeah. But what if, what if you have the vulnerabilities in the, in the system itself, in the, in the machines themselves, sure. where you don't even have to do that? You can adjudicate through the Wi-Fi, you can adjudicate through a port. Yeah, that's what we should be worried about. That is far more vulnerable, yeah. far more devastating. And that is the concern it, cited by it, the EAC. Right. That is the concern. That's right, and 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 they, you know, why didn't they have this concern before the election? Yeah, 
Well, it's clear they did now, right? Because they were clearly waiting after the election to make these new voter guides, voter guidelines available. But, you know, they did months and months of work to come up with these. A lot of that work was done in 1819 in early 20. uh, But the rule change occurs afterwards. It's it's a head scratcher. A lot of people reacting to it. And and then there's still the concern that maybe these rules aren't even severe enough to protect against some potential vulnerabilities. Really a remarkable moment. Commissioner, it's always great to have you on the show. You always bring a lot of value, a lot of insight, and I'm looking forward to having our conversation on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 as well. You're, you're, you're always a, a great to be talked to. We always come away with big news when we're talking with you. Thanks, John. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll come right back after these messages. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home? isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest for the first time on this show. Joining us is the longtime executive assistant to former President Ronald Reagan, the author of the great book, The President Will See, one of my favorite books, and a really great political commentator, writer, and public speaker, Peggy Grande. Peggy, good to have you on the show. John, thank you so much for having me on. My first time, hopefully not my last time, but I appreciate you having me on and thanks for all you're doing. For certain, not going to be the last time. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Great. I'm uh, really excited to have you. And, you know, I, it's funny as we get um, further and further from the Reagan years, some of the portrait and importance of him actually has grown. And most presidents fade in the history, mm-hmm. right? And for some reason, uh, we live in this era now where conservatives, as they try to find the new conservatism for the 21st century are going back to the future, right? They're going back to Ronald Reagan's principles, dusting them off and modernizing them for the period we live Mm -hmm. in. I just wonder, as someone who worked by his side for 10 years, how would Ronald Reagan look at the conservative movement today? Wow. Well, I mean, that's a big question. And I certainly (laughs) never put words in his mouth, but I do believe that the principles that he stood for and talked about and articulated so beautifully were timeless. And he not only addressed the questions of the day, but he framed it in a way that these were questions of an era or a time. It was something always far bigger than himself because it was about America. It was about the American people. It was about the world. And so he framed things in a way that weren't time and date stamped, although he addressed the issues that were pressing then. Um, But when you live by timeless principles, when that is your guiding North Star, then you don't lick your fingers, stick it to the wind and see where the political winds are blowing. And if you've ever seen Ronald Reagan's speeches, actually even from the 1960s, his Goldwater, the famous time for choosing speech. I mean, you could, except for a few names of people who have passed on, 
this speech could, could stand alone today and it's a warning for today of exactly where we're at. You kind of look at it, beat your head against the wall and say, have we learned nothing? Did we not listen? <laughs> Why are we in this loop chasing our tail? Because these principles work. We just need to be strong and stick to them with optimism and just a full court press every day toward things that we know work. Yeah, no, it's such such an important time and peace through strength, which I think we saw a lot of in the end of the Trump administration where the goal was to achieve things, but by not, you know, giving in, not negotiating, not giving money, not capitulating. Uh, it seems like peace through strength is such an important thing to be reminded of when we're in this moment now where we've withdrawn from Afghanistan. And I think that one of the most chaotic and, and disorganized ways I could ever mm-hmm. imagine. Um, mm-hmm. When you talk to the, the former Reagan luminaries, when you talk to current members of the party and the conservative movement, what, what lesson should we learn from the way Biden uh, exited Afghanistan? Well, <laughs> that is, uh, we know, a complete opposite way of how Ronald Reagan would have handled things. And what a chaotic disaster. And I think Ronald Reagan would, you know, look at that and say, this was not a failure of democracy. This was not a failure of our U.S. military. This was a failure of democratic leadership and policies. And so, you know, it it's, easy to point fingers and pass blame, but democracy didn't fail, military didn't fail. This was leadership that failed. And Ronald Reagan led in a way that was inspiring, that was optimistic. He trusted our military, he trusted the American people to make good decisions and he communicated things. I think part of the disaster, not only what's happening on the ground is the lack of communication and transparency and the mixed messages. And Ronald Reagan was unafraid to be the adult in the room, look through the camera, come into your living room and say, okay, America, (laughs) let's have some straight talk. And let me tell you some things that are kind of hard to hear. It's going to be a rough patch, but we're going to get through it together and painted a vision of what was better on the other side. And we just really see that sorely lacking. We're in a place where our allies don't trust us, our enemies don't fear us. And that is an unprecedented and dangerous position. Ronald Reagan would have never put us in that. Yeah, 100% would not have. And uh, it's so much to, to learn from. It's funny. Uh, as we as we move down the, the this year, we've had the pandemic, we've had the uh, uh, economy, and still the challenges with that. The bungled Afghan withdrawal uh, re- reminder that uh, a lot of what we've seen emanates from a very big government that oftentimes seems to fumble. And Ronald Reagan was always concerned about the size of government. He always believed limited yes. government was there. Do you think we're at a moment in American history where people say, listen, after 9-11, we embrace government because we want it to be safer. But 20 years later and trillions of dollars of spending in all different directions, I'm not sure we're any better off. We might have gone backwards. Do you think we're at a moment where everyday people look at government and say we got to rein it in? I think that people are looking at government in an entirely different way. And maybe perhaps they are going back to the Reagan idea of government is not the solution. Perhaps government is the problem. I mean, Reagan used to joke the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. (laughs) That's right. And I think the American people are probably at that point just stop helping. (laughs) Stop helping. Get out of the way. And another fundamental Reagan principle that I think maybe rather than just no government or less government 
Reagan really advocated for the idea of these private-public partnerships, and that was so effective. I mean, he was the first one really to almost privatize the space industry. We had this technology in the military circles, but, you know, was there a way to commercialize this? And, um, you know, he was really at the forefront of that. And so I think America is really going to have an appetite moving forward for less government unilateral control over everything and maybe go back to some of these private public partnerships where we feel like maybe we get a little bit of the best of both worlds. I will say on the heels of Afghanistan and what a disaster that has been, I'm always an optimist like Reagan and I believe that on the heels of crisis is always an opportunity for new leaders to emerge. So who are those voices that are going to be strong to lead us out of chaos into a place where we feel like we can trust our leadership again? And so I'm excited looking to the horizon. Who are those voices? Who are those people going to be that will lead us from a place of utter chaos and failure to a place where America can once again be proud on the world stage? Yeah, that's really the key thing. I I saw the uh, column that Tony Blair wrote in the, the, literally the implicit criticism of, of the Biden administration and the failures uh, to execute, to communicate, to recognize that con- actions have consequences was so strong. I, I can't remember another time, uh, maybe since the mm-hmm. 1970s, when you saw a, a foreign leader, foreign dignitary, be so sharply critical of the United States. And also, when you read it, you go, well, I, I can't defend that one. He's right. You know, he's right. It happened. Right. Absolutely. And we see criticism that's well-deserved from across the world. And we really are going to have to do some triage and put back together our reputation, you know, and, and this White House, unfortunately, is focusing on all the wrong things, patting themselves on the back. This amazing airlift, we got all these people out. Well, it's as if they lift, lit a building on fire, ran and put the fire out and said, didn't we do a great job putting the fire out? I mean, yeah. it, it didn't have to happen this way in the first place. And so, um, it, this White House really is going to have to start earning the trust, not only of the American people, again, but certainly the world. We know that a strong America makes for a stronger world. And so that's what I worry about is, you know, who are these aggressors and these bullies on the world stage? And they see a vacuum of power, a void of leadership, and they are doubling down on exploiting it. And we're, I think, unfortunately, entering a very dangerous time. Yeah, no, it's just stunning. Just a stunning time. And and I think you're right. Uh, A lot of the people that I've talked to in the last uh, two to three weeks, and we're getting ready for to celebrate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And of course, we never want to forget what happened that day and how it changed Mm -hmm. the world or the people that gave their lives that day. Uh, But there's so much chatter in the law enforcement intelligence community about a new wave of terrorism. And I'm just wondering, Mm -hmm. as you look back, uh, how how do we get to this point where after a 20-year war, after a massive bureaucracy called the Department of Homeland Security, many of the experts, the people on the front lines are saying, we may be less secure right at this moment than we were after 9-11. How does that happen? Yeah, well, I think we were criticizing this as an endless war when actually you looked at the drawdown of troops during um, President Trump. And I would call it really an endless but very fragile peace. I mean, women were going to work, girls were in school, there was a functioning government at some level. We had a small footprint of military presence, but the UN had twice the amount of people on the ground as we did. And so it wasn't this endless war. It wasn't the war of 20 years ago or 10 years ago. 
it could have been a very endless but fragile, tenuous kind of piece. Um, and so why we left something like that to pull a political stunt before 9-11 is unfathomable. And we have really condemned the next generation of Afghans to a life of uncertainty and one that we know will not be what they had just a few months ago. It, it's heartbreaking to yeah. watch. And, and also we gave them a taste of freedom. And once you have that, you long for it. You never want to give yeah. it up. And uh, yeah. it has to be so painful at this, at this moment in, uh, yeah. in American history. I want to switch to domestic policy for a second. First off, for uh, we were talking a little bit about cutting government and doing. Uh, where are some of the places that rep- uh, Republicans, conservatives could legitimately cut government, slice 20, 30 percent of it, and we wouldn't feel much of an impact? Do you have, as you look out, you know, who could, what are some of the places that would be fashionable to cut spending right now? Well, I think we could start with any place, really. (laughs) We saw, at least, you know, under the Trump administration, which I served in, um, we saw he had such a smaller footprint of staff. He did. And we were able to function very well, kind of that lean, mean team ready to go. Um, We were a much, much more agile team. We could pivot easily when um, it was required. And so I think there's just this overarching bloat and waste. I read something, for instance, about the Postal Service. You know, they're raising prices again. And again, back to Reagan, private public sector, um, you know, solutions always work better. And, you know, by the time we've got half a million people who are postal employees and every year the amount of prices of stamps go up and um, the amount of letters that get sent go down. I I mean, we're sustaining it just to sustain it. Um, And so there's so much of government that we sustain for the sake of sustaining. Um, I worked in OPM. We provided guidance for the entire federal workforce and, so much of it was so frustrating to watch um, just the bureaucracy in in action, um, how they protect themselves and self-preserve really need to just come through, modernize. And there's so many things that could be modernized. Paper processes, you wouldn't even believe it. There are paper processes still in the federal government, and that's job preservation for a lot of people. So we need the, the private sector to get involved with great solutions that will work in a government application. And I think we could start anywhere <laughs> with the cut. Yeah, now we really could. And, and I think the fact that we kept most federal workers home for a whole year and didn't notice that they weren't at work uh, yeah. is probably living proof that uh, we, we're not going to miss a lot of them. And again, listen, there's some that do incredible work, right? Our FBI agents, Absolutely. our military but there's a lot that are Absolutely. stacking paper cuts. Yeah, and it drives me yeah. nuts. Well, one of the interesting things just on that topic before we move on that I think the federal workforce is going to find that they may regret if they didn't need to be in the office all that time, then all of a sudden our need for a physical presence of a federal workforce that you have to draw a 25-mile radius maybe around Washington, D.C. to recruit from all of a sudden, if it's a virtual job, you can recruit the smartest, the brightest, the best from Nebraska, Montana, Idaho, New Mexico. And all of a sudden, our government employees don't have to be geographically located. So, right. you know, while they thought that was a great idea to stay home, that also may put them in a precarious position moving forward. And it may allow a great influx of new talent, new ideas, and new eyes on some of the problems to develop solutions from all over the nation, not just from the Beltway. It's so true. Uh, dispersing government among 
among common sense middle America might actually make the uh, government a little more common sense if that's possible. Yeah. Uh, well, I would love to see each of these departments be located in a different big city. Yeah. Um, I, it's what I would love to yeah. decentralize. <laughs> yeah. It would bring them closer to the people they're supposed to serve, which Absolutely. is, is, is Absolutely. remarkable. You had a great column this uh, past summer. And it's something that I've been talking to. I've been talking to a lot of conservative leaders in the last few months. And there is an entire generation of young millennials that are really concerned about the future of the globe, global warming Mm -hmm. and uh, climate change and the environment in general. And, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, there's talk of the Paris Accord, the Kyoto uh, Treaty. But the truth of the matter is the most successful and long lasting environmental treaty occurred under Ronald Reagan, a conservative president, the Montreal Protocols, which brought down. Um, the ozone uh, uh, and really close the ozone holes in our sky above. Uh, how would, if Ronald Reagan were alive today and the, the essence of Ronald Reagan's policies, would the environment, the outdoors be an important part of his agenda? Yeah. You know, unfortunately, I think the right has always tried to use facts and figures to persuade people or bring <laughs> yes. them to their side. And the left does such a good job of creating these beautiful stories and yep. narratives and tugging at the heartstrings, which is great, except if their ideas don't work, it, it means nothing That's at the right. end of the day. And, you know, not to put them in the crosshairs or anything, but you look at like the DOE, you know, they talk about all these big ideas, yep. but you know, for instance, nuclear power. They haven't built a nuclear power plant in over 30 years. It's so crazy, isn't what it? What are they doing? What are they yeah. doing over there? Um, and so Ronald Reagan was a pragmatist always. And so what is government doing to tip the scales? And, you know, we look right now, all the money and all the dollars are going toward renewables. Yep. And that's fine. We don't have to compete with them. We can be complementary with them, but nothing can compete with free. And so it's not like these solutions work. It's just they're so heavily subsidized that the other solutions don't even have a chance to to be implemented because yeah. you can't compete with free. Um, you know, 50 years ago, if you're looking at like, um, you know, computers, computers took up an entire building and now you have the fastest, most um, amazing computer in your pocket. Um, 50 years ago, nuclear power plants looked like these big chunky footprints, right. you know, all over the place. And that's still what nuclear power plants look like. We know that the technology has advanced so much. And so why not, again, lean into these private-public partnerships um, where the solutions and the technology are there? Let's get government out of the way, stopping and obstructing the advancement of these ideas and allow them to be moved forward with government support and help, not obstruction. Yeah, it's funny. Nuclear power is, a, and that's one of the things you, you pointed out in your your column. It, it, it's a zero emissions uh, technology. It's been proven safe. Obviously, there's been a couple accidents over the years, but predominantly incredibly safe. And uh, we have an abundant supply of uranium to to do it. And it's like everybody forgot about nuclear after the 1990s and no one's talking about it. Um, Will that change, you think? And does the next president, the one who succeeds Joe Biden, have an opportunity to to uh, build out many of our European allies are going all in on nuclear. China's going in on all nuclear. Do you think the next president has an opportunity to table set this discussion? I think the next president has to, because we know it is the only solution that will work. To your point, it's abundant, it's baseload, it's clean. And by the way, it's the only technology that actually can decarbonize. The rest you're just going to talk about and do your offsets and whatever. Right. But this is the only technology that will do this. And 
while we look at it as an energy technology, of course, we cannot um, minimize the national security implications. Right. It first and foremost is a national security issue, not just an interchangeable energy commodity. And what you mentioned, China, followed closely by Russia, they dominate this arena. And so right now, a private company cannot compete with a state-owned enterprise like China. And so the next president is going to have to lean into this. We see people all over the world leaning into this. In fact, I don't know if you saw over the weekend, but Poland just announced a big nuclear power plant that they're going to move forward with under the leadership of an American company, IP3, and former ambassador there, Georgette Mosbacher. Um, And so they have said, this is the solution that will provide enough energy for our future here in Poland. We are looking at a future that's requiring more energy. If we're going to have electric vehicles, um, everything from data hubs to cryptocurrency mining um, requires so much more power, not less. And we've put ourselves as Americans into this place of energy poverty. We're self-flogging ourselves, you know, trying to make renewables do things that they cannot possibly do. Um, We saw it in Texas. We see it in California. And while we're doing that, China is building coal fire plants. And so I'm not saying that's the direction to go, but we have to compete with China. We have to look at nuclear energy, not only as an energy solution, but a national security issue. And if we allow people like China and Russia to dominate this on a world stage, I think we're putting ourselves in great danger. Yeah, no, we clearly are. And to see our adversaries in the world uh, doing what we should be doing, it's got to be all the more frustrating. Yeah. Reagan was the great governor of California, and California was a very different state when he was there. And today, (laughs) it is sort of the, it is the Petri dish of all the liberal policies, right? Because everything Mm -hmm. uh, that they want to bring to the rest of the world, the liberals do, starts in California. You now Mm -hmm. have people wanting to recall the governor, Gavin Newsom. Mm -hmm. You have people voting with their feet and leaving in historic numbers from California. Uh, We have a story on uh, the site today that says that the Biden administration doesn't want to send any Afghan refugees to California because it's too expensive. The government doesn't want to pay the tab to live in California. (laughs) Well, isn't that ironic? (laughs) Yes. Oh, the irony can't be lost. And then you you have this, you take these other two things that are going on in the energy space. Uh, the rates in California are the, some of the highest electricity rates in the country, up 7, 8, 10% a year. And there's still the threat of brownout because there's not a consistent power supply. And, oh, by the way, they're going to get rid of their na- next nuclear plant in the next couple of years. Um, right. Is California the land where Reagan once governed uh, maybe the now the epitome of what's wrong with the leftist sort of uh, solutions? <laughs> the poster child for why free markets work better than uh, contrived government markets. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I have been a lifelong Californian and I like to say we are the tip of the spear of bad ideas and the trial, (laughs) the test run for everything is here in California. I mean, ballot harvesting came here years ago and they did it in a very small, quiet way and thought, oh, this works really well. Let's see if we can roll this out nationwide. The mass mail out, mail out balloting um, sending ballots to everybody. Um, we've seen what one party control has done to this state. I mean, yeah. we rank 48th, 49th, 50th in almost every metric. Um, the cost of living is impossible. The crime is starting to go up. The homelessness on the streets just, and we throw more money and we throw the same bad ideas at um, the same problems. And those are not solutions. And we need brand new leadership in California. I think people here are ready for a change. And I, you know, I'm an optimist again. I always see that opportunity. 
Here in California, we are the only state in the nation where the Republican Party is not one of the top two parties in the state. We've got about 40% Democrats, 30 plus or minus a little bit independents, and those who did not state party. And just under that are Republicans. And so while everybody thinks, oh, it's a Democrat stage, you know, must be 80, 90%, only 40% are registered Democrats. And so you've got about 60% of the state that says, we're not them. And so what are the common sense solutions that we can implement in California? I believe we need to be fiscally responsible, maybe a little more socially neutral as a Republican Party, but stick with conservative principles that work. We have amazing natural talent, natural resources, innovation hubs here. We should be the tip of the spear of great ideas, and we have been. But you look at companies like Oracle, like Tesla, like HP, even Disney, these companies that have created industries worldwide that were born and raised here in California have all left because it's become an impossible place to do business. And so there's huge opportunities. At this point, we can only go up and get better. Um, but California has got to make a change because the welcome mat is out for people who want services and our taxpayers are leaving, as you said, moving, voting with their feet and going every place but here. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And uh, this recall will be a definitive moment to see where the the citizens of California end up. Uh, last question for you. As you look over the horizon and you see I mean, there's a lot of young, uh, accomplished conservatives that are beginning to move into larger political roles, larger policy roles, larger governing roles. Uh, who who do you like as a conservative, someone who was alongside Ronald Reagan for 10 years? Uh, who do you like? Who do you see emerging out there in the space that uh, is the next generation conservative? What Ronald Reagan was in the 60s. Right. And he actually wasn't very young, but he was always young at heart and young in thinking. And regardless of who that person is, I hope that it is somebody who loves America, who wants to put America and its people first, who is proud of who we are as a nation and proud of who we can and should be on the world stage. Somebody who embraces this concept of American exceptionalism, not to dominate over others, but to help others all around the world. We see that a strong America makes a stronger and safer world. And I wanna see somebody who once again fills us with that pride, with that optimism, with that patriotism. We're so craving that right now. And anytime I go and speak about Reagan, you just see people looking up almost with tears in their eyes, missing the days where we felt proud of who we were as Americans. And so I think America is ready to embrace a leader that is strong against our adversaries, is unafraid to push back against bullies and aggressors all around the world, but has a soft spot in their heart for Americans and loves all Americans, not just the coastal elites, not just the people in the big cities, but has a heart for the Midwest. You know, Ronald Reagan was from a little small town in the middle of, um, he was born in Illinois, Illinois right. spent most of his life in small towns in the Midwest. And he had such an appreciation for small town values. And those are the values of America. And even though he left the small town and the Midwest, the Midwest and the small towns never left him. And I think somebody needs to have a view for all of America, not just for the cities of America, because we saw, especially during the pandemic, lots of people discovered the beauty of small town America. And I think that's where our future is going to lie, not just in these big coastal hubs. 
pretty darn amazing. And that, you know, I, I grew up in shadows in New York City, and then my eight years in the Midwest really changed me. It just opened my eyes mm-hmm. to things, and I think that was something that was unique to Ronald Reagan. He always kept Middle America close to his heart. There's no no doubt about he it. He did. He did. Well. Peggy, I could talk for hours with you, and what we're going to do is we're going to bring you back on the show again because we, we have so Perfect. much more we could talk about. But such an important time. Thank you so much for sharing a lot of wisdom today with us, and uh, let's be sure to get you back on soon. Terrific. Thank you, John, and thank you for being such a strong voice out there for all of us. We appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Yep, it's time to wrap things up for the day. Uh, Thank you for listening, and thank you to Bernie Carrick and Peggy Grande for two really riveting interviews, a lot of information, a lot to chew on as we head into the rest of today. Now, before we go, every so often, I like to shout out one of our partners at Just the News at John Solomon Reports, because they're all offering us really remarkable opportunities, special offers, because you're a member of the Just the News family and my good friends at Policy Genius have something special that you need to check out. If you're in the market for home and auto insurance, looking for ways to bundle and save money, the folks at Policy Genius have got the right recipe for you. They've saved customers an average, get a load of this, of $1,250 per year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance. That's an average savings that they're achieving. They've also saved new customers an average of $435 per year on auto insurance and new customers an average of $350 per year on home insurance based on what they were being offered. These guys, the team at Policy Genius, will handle the paperwork, get your new policy set up, switch over your current one. Getting started is easy as eating pie. It's that easy. So head to policygenius.com and answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property. They'll compare rates from America's top insurers from Allstate to Progressive and find you the lowest quotes. If they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. And that's because their top-notch service has earned Policy Genius all sorts of five-star reviews. They're that good. People trust them. They love them. This is a quality product. So do me a favor today. If you want to save money, who doesn't want to save money, particularly with inflation going up, all the challenges that our country is facing, all you got to do today to make a quick savings, head to policygenius.com and get started right now. Policygenius.com. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. That's what these guys do. Think about that thing I told you at the beginning. An average of $1,250 a year saved on combined auto and home insurance. Who doesn't want to save that sort of money? So go to policygenius.com right now. All right, folks, that wraps it up. Tomorrow, we should have two amazing guests. Congressman Tiffany from Wisconsin, who's been big on the Afghan refugee story. He'll be joining us. He's been on the show before. Great guest. Always has some major news in his back pocket to share. And then we're going to play a little part of our exclusive interview 
with former Congressman Lee Hamilton, a Democrat from Indiana, the co-chair of the 9-11 Commission as we get closer to the 20th anniversary, just a few days away. We're going to hear from one of the people who tried to help our government, our country, learn lessons from the failures of 9-11. Both of them tomorrow. Stay tuned. It's going to be a great show. Until then, may God bless you and may God bless this extraordinary country of the United States. As he always has, you've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News.